Hi, everybody. This is Gatsad. It's been a few weeks since my last guest, but I've got one of the rare guests this time around because I think I only have one other situation where I've interviewed a husband and wife team separately. I've had Brett and Heather Weinstein on my show, the, the evolutionary biologist, separately. And I've had my current guest's uh, wife, her name is Cynthia, Cynthia Farahat. I've had her on twice. And today I've got her lovely husband, Jeffrey Higgins. How are you doing, Jeff? Oh, thank you for having me. By the way, my wife could be here with me. It's not like we're having a problem. She'd be <laughs> happy to appear with me. Yeah, gotcha. no, she, she's, she's loved your show and you, you did such a great job interviewing her and everybody else that you've had on this. I got to tell you, Gad, you're, you're one of the uh, great voices for free speech in the world right now. And it's so it's so important. I've probably been following you for close to a decade. Oh, my God. Thank really you so much. Uh, coming from someone uh, of your repute, it, it actually means a lot more to me to have a fan such as yourself than the Stanford and Harvard professors. Uh, because uh, maybe one doesn't want to have the imprimatur of fellow academics these days because academia is going through a rough, uh, rough patch right now. But I just want to quickly uh, tell people who you are, for those who don't know you. Uh, you've spent 25 years as a law enforcement uh, off, you know, career. Uh, you're now retired. You were you're a retired supervisory special agent who was instrumental in capturing the world's leading heroin dealer from Afghanistan, Haji Baksho. We'll talk about that now. By the way, the, I I knew of you through your wife, but one day about three weeks ago, I was watching the series Narco Terrorism. And it was the entire show was on the capture of that heroin dealer. And here comes this gentleman, you. I'm saying, I think I know this gentleman. So then I write to your wife. I said, is 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 this is this your husband? She's like, yes. And that's how I said, oh, I've got to have the 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 great Jeff Higgins on. Let me just finish reading uh your bio. You 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 were involved in uh counterterrorism, and then you're also an award-winning and number one. Amazon best-selling author. Some of your previous novels include uh, the book Furious, another uh, book Unseen, and you have a book coming out on February 29th called The Forever Game. Did I cover some of the highlights or do you want to add anything else to that, Jeff? No, absolutely. What a kind introduction. Thank you. So much. <laughs> All right. So what I thought we would do is just begin uh, with your very uh, alluring and exciting and intriguing uh, law enforcement career. Just tell us what were some of the big highlights? What was your trajectory? And then we could drill down on that uh, heroin dealer that you helped capture. Yeah, well, I was really fortunate. I had that 25-year career. You know, I started with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office in Tampa, Florida. And I mean, you know, at all levels, I've worked at all levels, really. You know, I've worked with local police around the world. I've trained police around the world. Um, so I've been I've been fortunate to do some of the biggest uh, federal cases. So it's 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 it was a really interesting career. Ironically, I sort of got into it. I started as a reporter and I got into it because I was looking for something exciting and I thought it would be good fodder for books. But it turned into 25 years. Once 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 I was bitten by that law enforcement bug and actually doing some good in the world, it was really hard to get out of it. You know, how did you switch so from? How did you switch, say, from, uh, you know, the sheriff's department where one can spend their entire career doing good things to going to DEA, to doing counterterrorism? What's the what are the bridges that lead you to all of these different hats that you're wearing as a law enforcement officer? Well, I think change is good, right? Like it's every now and then, I, I, about every five years throughout my life, I've changed jobs, even if even if it was within the same agency. You know, so I started and when I was with the sheriff's office, I started in patrol. I got into my first shooting two weeks into the job. 
you know, that we would, uh, it was a call for a, uh, like a loud party or it was a barbecue. And we went to go talk to somebody and he, and he murdered a woman right in front of us and then tried to shoot my partner and I shot at him. It's weird when I, I ended up being in a lot of shootings over my career, but like that first one, right? The first time you're doing something that you've only seen on TV, it's a, li it's a little shocking and surprising. And I swear to this day, I saw my bullet like go right over his gun, right over his hand. Wow. They, they say that's impossible, but I, I swear I saw it. But, but you have these weird, you know, uh, physiological reactions when you're in like, like high, high tension, uh, in incidents like that, like your hearing shuts down, you get that tunnel vision, you know, where you can only see what's directly in front of you, but the more you do it, the more, I guess, normal it becomes. And so later you just m moderate your breathing and you just kind of get used to it. But statistically speaking, would it be correct to say that most law enforcement, uh, officers will go through their entire career without necessarily ever shooting their guns. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. The vast majority, I, I think that I, I want to say it's like 20% uh, over a whole career and the number of people who've been in multiple shootings is, is like just, a, you know, in the single digits, it's a, that's a small percentage, but it depends on where you are. If you're in a little town someplace, you know, you, you're not using your guns so much, right? You're, it's, it's all informal policing where you're talking to people and doing conflict resolution and things. But I always chose to be in like, you know, the, 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 the most impoverished neighborhoods, the highest crime places to actually do the job where it was needed. I mean, you're retired now. And in a second, I want to get to the, the capture of the Afghani heroin dealer, because that is truly a, an incredible story worthy of a, of a movie. Uh, do you miss that adrenaline? Do you miss that rise in cortisol levels and testosterone and the rest of the hormonal endocrinological system? Yeah, I'd be lying if I said I didn't, you know, it is, it is sort of, you get used to it. And I, I, I did a lot of, uh, you know, kind of out there on pointy edge of the spear type of things throughout my career. And so, yeah, it, it, there, there's a certain excitement to it. There's also a, a clarity to it. You know, when you're, when you're like in combat with, with bad guys, you know, it's, you, those are the people you're hunting and there they are in front of you and they want to kill you and you want to kill them. And, you know, there, there really is that, that clarity of, of just, just forgetting all the paperwork, forgetting all, <laughs> all, all the nuance and gray areas. You're just, you know, I, I, I kind of miss that too. Wow. You know? Even when you're a cop, you're out on the street, you know, like at the, you, you save somebody's life, you just save somebody's life. You know, there's no figuring out how is what I'm doing now going to like affect the mankind over the next 10 years or something. It's right there in front of you. So you get that like immediate gratification, which is nice. So, yeah, I miss a little of that. But honestly, a lot of the guys I worked with are, are died over the years, you know, both in the military, like we, I was embedded with the special forces, a teams, and I was in combat with the seals and, you know, I worked with, uh, you know, our DEA fast teams and other DEA units around the world. And so at, at some point you start getting that feeling like, you know, you can only, you can only do this so many times, you know, I've had mortars landing near me, rockets going over my head, RPGs fired at me, people shooting at me, you know, like eventually it doesn't matter like how good you are. There's so much luck that, that, you know, that, that really determines the outcome of those violent confrontations. So. Were, were, were you able to, once you segued back to civilian life and you retired of course many people go and i hope you don't want me asking this but many uh you know active duty folks who then retire whether it be in the military or as you know law enforcement officers will have all sorts of mental health issues were you able to uh, uh what, what are you saying <laughs> no, no, you I, what I, <laughs> no no not that you're uh not that you're uh you have any problems but you know it's you know there's ptsd there is uh all kinds of emotional trauma. I mean, it, you know, I spent 
you know, after we escaped the Lebanese civil war, I actually talked about this with the gentleman who killed bin Laden, literally. He was on my show, uh, Robert O'Neill. Uh, and, you know, I was telling him that I had nightmares for about 25 years after leaving Lebanon, where it was always one of two recurring nightmares. I would either wake up uh, because I just realized that I ran out of ammunition as the bad guys are coming in or that my gun jammed. And as I was telling him that story, he goes, oh, we, we, many of us have had similar dreams. It's called the warrior dream. And so there's, there's always going to be a, a, a mental health related signature when you're going through these difficult situations. Did you experience any of that? Not really. I know it's a real thing. I definitely had those dreams. Like I, th I think everybody in law enforcement over the years has had the dreams where their gun won't fire or it's jammed or it's coming apart or you're trying to get it put back together in time. You know, these kind of just stress related dreams. But yeah, no, luck, luckily, no PTSD or at least it hasn't manifested yet. Let's see what happens during this show. <laughs> now, do you think that it is the, the fact that you've been able, able to be so fortunate as to avoid many of these uh, difficult pitfalls? Is it just your unique disposition that allowed you to have the the armament the emotional armament to protect yourself and or is it that when you returned there was a social network that allowed you to to deal with some of those difficulties yeah i mean i think both of those things yeah. right it's, it's hard to say when something doesn't happen how do you prove the negative you know but certainly you know having having support of like agencies and you're and honestly when you're in combat or and the same thing was true when i was in patrol as a police officer you know at the end of the day you get together and have a beer together and talk things out and just that camaraderie and understanding that everyone's kind of going through the same thing is is really helpful i think i think the longer you hold on to something that's bothering you right the the worse it becomes and that's when you start having these chronic problems but if you just get it out or you know I, I'm, I'm not a person to hold my feelings in either so i'll just tell people if something's wrong and you know? well but by the way i did exactly the same thing yesterday you you uh, i'm not sure if you saw it or not we talked about this offline that i've been going through some difficulties with the tax uh, realities and I just put out a tweet. I knew that there'd be people who'd attack me. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo, successful guy complaining that they're taking all your money. But I felt that psychologically, emotionally, it would do me good. Even if it's a you know very large platform that I have, it's as if I want people to bear witness to what I'm going through. And just putting out that tweet around, I don't remember when it was, maybe 11 o'clock at night or something, made me feel better psychologically. No, absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with complaining about taxes or complaining <laughs> about somebody punishing you for success, you know, and in a progressive system like you have and like we have here, right? I'm in, I'm in uh, Virginia. You know, it's the same thing. It's just the, the better you do, the more they take. And you, you, and you get to that point where it's, it's really hard to. And, and by the way, you can see this all over the place, right? Where else, look at all the socialist countries. Look at all the former Soviet bloc countries, right? Why work if they're just going to take it away? Why work if you're not going to get something in, in return? I mean, it's, it's just basic human nature. And I, I don't know how many times we have to see the same thing repeated before we stop doing it. I know. So I've I've uh, I've used this quote before in several of my writings and, uh, uh, you know, in my books. It's by a quote by E.O. Wilson, who is a are, are you familiar with E.O. Wilson? Do you, do you know the name? No, no. E.O. Wilson just recently uh, passed away. I just finished actually his autobiography called The Naturalist. He's a or he was an entomologist by uh, by training. Uh, he studied insects, specifically social ants. Uh, he was an evolutionary biologist at Harvard, a big intellectual hero of mine. 
And at one point, when he was asked about the virtues uh, of socialism and communism, do you think it's a good idea? Uh, his answer is absolutely brilliant. Uh, he said, great idea, wrong species. Because what, what he means there, uh, and I think some of my listeners and viewers have heard me explain this before, but others not, so it's worth repeating. Uh, social ants are perfectly suited for communism because you have a singular reproductive queen, and then you have a whole bunch of indistinguishable worker ants and soldier ants. And therefore, this idea of we're all going to be indistinguishable from each other makes sense within that particular phylogenetic history of that species. Humans are not social ants. Some of us are taller, shorter, better looking, less better looking, more fortunate, less fortunate, harder working, less hard. So when you are imposing a socioeconomic political system, to your point, that is contrary to human nature, it shouldn't take a fancy professor to say it's always going to fail. And as you said, it has failed repeatedly, but usually the rebuttal is, well, because you haven't tried true socialism, true communism. If only the next round we we implement the true one, then you will see that it, it truly is a utopia. You know, and as an evolutionary biologist, I'm, I'm sure you know this better than anyone, but actual happiness, like deep long-term happiness comes from bettering your environment and bettering yourself. I mean, you, you know, the, you're, you're not built to sit in the mud, right? And get rained on. And so when you take that away, when you take away that ability to create it, it just, it makes people deeply unhappy. And, you know, I worked in a lot of in several uh, former Soviet countries, you know, working with their police, working with intelligence. And, and you know, I, I had one guy, I remember one, one was a Romanian police officer who told me how he, how he hated capitalism because now he had to work. In his old job, he didn't have to get out of bed. He didn't have to do anything. You know, he didn't have to produce. But, you know, I, I, would, I would rather have to work a little bit and have like five times the standard of living, you know, or have the ability to work harder to improve my life than, than, than not, you know? And I mean, just look at the people coming across the Southern border right now, right? I mean, you have people, a lot of people, not all of them, but a lot of them are just fleeing economic hardship. You know, look at what happened to Venezuela. Look at what happens everywhere, right? The system is tried. It's, it's insane that we're still talking about it. Did you see the, I just saw this clip earlier. I was on the treadmill trying to uh, run away my existential frustrations at the taxation theft that I just experienced. Uh, did you see the uh, the noble illegal immigrants who were just caught because they had beaten up some cops in New York City? Did you see their reaction as the camera caught them? Yeah, I did. These are they. They was, was a mob beat up a bunch of NYPD officers and they were released on Nobel, by the way. Like that's a welcome. Exactly. To New but did you see when after when they caught them? or I don't know if it was before or after, rather than exhibiting some contrition or shame or fear, or they were giving the finger yeah. to the camera. So imagine the chutzpah, right? That's the right term. And in Arabic, you'd say, right? It's this kind of, it's this F-U that is really deeply felt, right? So that there is no sense of shame. I come into the country illegally, I beat up your police officers. I'm now arrested. And my response is I give you the finger because I know there will be no repercussions to me. A society can't withstand that level of lunacy. 
What do you think? No, Jeff? it's a deep contempt for the society and it's, and we bring it on ourselves, right? People understand strength. They understand rule of law when you don't have those things. I mean, you, you, like you can't have, you can't have open borders in a socialist system, right? I mean, just the math doesn't work. This is, this is first grade math here. You know, I, my, my wife is an immigrant. My grandfather and grandmother came from Lebanon, by the way, I'm half Lebanese. Oh, is so, that right? Yeah, that's right. They came from up there in Brumana, which is just in the hills above Beirut. But you don't speak Arabic, because if I'm, if not, I'm going to break out the Arabic. You know, I'm smiling a little because my Arabic consists like 99% of profanity. And my if when my wife sees this right now, she's going to be holding her breath. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll skip the profanity, <laughs> but I, I think I could imagine what some of those juicy lines might be. All right, uh, let's, I want to get back and then we can, we can, go into all kinds of political stuff. And then I want to talk about your your authoring career and your latest book, a lot to talk about. But tell us about that incredible story. Number one heroin dealer in the world. You were instrumental in capturing him. And as I was trying to prepare for the show, I, I think they might have even mentioned it in the narco-terrorism thing at the end. He's been now released, correct? That's right. Yeah. All right, so tell us the whole story leading up to his release. So I was I was in New York and I, I went to Afghanistan because I was actually one of the first people to arrive at the the North Tower, the Twin Towers, when they came down on 9-11. Wow. It was myself and an NYPD officer and a, and a uh, Suffolk County uh, uh, district district attorney investigator were the first. And I, I kind of I vowed on that day, standing in that rubble, that I was going to go after terrorists. And so when DEA opened up its its office in Afghanistan, this was in the end of 2003, I volunteered and I became the assistant country attache there. So I helped stand up that office. So very early on, when we first got there, we were training the local cops. We were arming them. We were going on missions. We were, we were trying to trying to get them to to be able to be some somewhat functional, right? To to bring the rule of law from like, teaching people what is evidence to actually going out and targeting bad guys. And and from those early days, uh, Haji Bacho's name was coming up. This is back in like 2004. He was he was clearly the world's uh, most prolific uh, drug trafficker. Period. Right? He dwarfed everybody else. Um, and so, you know, I, I was I was integral in the investigation itself. Like I was I was work, I was as I told you before, I was living with uh, special forces, the, the operational detachment alpha out in, in the Nangarhar province, which is by the Khyber Pass on the border with Pakistan. And I was running sources there. So I, we'd go in for four months at a time and I'd develop sources and go out, put on you know, local clothing and go out into into the uh, into the rural areas and set up meetings and gather evidence and then target these you know high value targets put together criminal cases against them. And then when possible, extradite them back to the U S we actually did the first case where we, uh, we had the first narco-terrorism case, like based on our, the intelligence that we gathered over a, a couple of years, Congress passed the narco-terrorism law, the 21, uh, 960 a law. And so we, I was able to make the first arrest and, and the first conviction under that, uh, under that law. But Bacho, the whole time we were out there was one of the, the, the biggest uh, drug organization in the world. And, a little secret. I work for DEA, but I'm a, I'm libertarian, and I actually believe in the legalization of most drugs, <laughs> which which you won't hear a lot. But you know, I've always targeted uh, drug organizations and, and transnational criminal groups that were killing people and, and doing just horrific things. You know, and his certainly was. Like like in this particular case, we had his people threatening to boil one of our witnesses in oil. We had they had firefights with with some of our police officers trying to kill people that were involved with the case. I mean, these are. In, in places with no rule of law, you know, and like Afghanistan, it, it's it's the war, it's warlordism, right? It's it's a, the, the guy with the most people, the most soldiers and most troops. And and someone like Bacho had influence and in, in corrupted officials like all over the world. He, he distributed to 22 countries 
when when um, he ended up being picked up in Pakistan and then the Pakistan government delivered him to the Afghan police and then we, we extradited him back to the United States. And so and then I, I was I did the trial with him with, you know, it was, it was our special operations division with our Kabul country office and we in and, and our fast teams and everyone who contributed to that. So it was it was, a, you know, a lot of people over over several years put together these cases. But in the end, we convicted him on some just kind of basic 101 uh, narcotics enforcement, doing undercover buys with, with one of my sources and, you know, doing getting him on the telephone and doing tapes and things like that. But I remember um, the gentleman who, you know, you you had kind of dropped him off by his compound. Uh, right. Uh, I can't remember. Was his name was his name Muhammad? Yeah, they, they, they were all so everyone was working under aliases because as you could even by the way, even people testified under aliases in federal court because the, the threat against them was so great. I had right. a case before this one where one of my uh, witnesses uh, was murdered as soon as he went back to Afghanistan and then his brother was attacked. And, you know, I mean, so it's a really it's a it's a very real threat. And of course, now that we're not there, which is just tragic, we have, you know, all the police officers who worked with all the intelligence officers we worked with, they're all under threat as well. I've got I saw pictures of a guy I indicted for terrorism in New York at the day, like in the days that we as we were pulling out going in going house to house looking for witnesses in some of these cases i have one one of my one of my sources took a picture of him coming the guy come the this taliban commander coming out of his house wow so do you feel that i mean having lived in that culture for however how long did you spend in afghanistan so i was there from 2004 to 2010 not all the time but a lot like sometimes i some one year i went like for for three, four month deployments, almost, almost in a row. Initially I was there for about 15 months straight. So I think I spent uh, three and a half, four years over that period of time, actually in country. Do, do you feel that? So, I mean, there are, there are several causes as to why those societies fail. I mean, we can argue that, you know, uh, an Islamic theocracy is probably not the way to organize society, but even if we leave that part aside, which is a big, if that's, a, that, that's a big gorilla in the room, but if we leave that aside, is the endemic corruption in these societies so enmeshed within the DNA of the society that it's almost impossible to extricate yourself out of the death spiral of those societies? Yes, but I, I think that's a symptom more than a cause. You know, I think at, at a very basic, like philosophical level, you have to have property rights. You have to believe in individual liberty. You know, you have to believe that individual life has value. You know, some of these Judeo-Christian Western ideas have to be there at the very beginning because otherwise nothing else makes sense, right? <laughs> right? If, if the individual, if there isn't some sanctity to the life of the individual and what they earn doesn't stay with them. Of course, this is a tough conversation for us to have today after you've done your taxes, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, this without without that, without without those philosophical underpinnings and, and the economics that come along with like capitalism and free markets, I think it's I think it's yeah, you you will inevitably have corruption because why not? Right. Like yeah. what, what 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 is what is the counter argument for corruption if property rights don't really exist? Yeah, exactly right. Well said. OK, so then you you catch the guy, you put the case together. He's convicted. Uh, sentenced to, I think, a pretty long sentence. I don't know, forty years or thirty years, something. What, what was the original sentence? I think the original one was life, but it might have been. It was beyond his lifespan. For okay, certain. there you go. And, and we charged him with multiple things. And and what what one of the charges was set aside. So the actual narco terrorism charge was set aside. The 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 drug charge we charged him with the undercover buys of heroin stood. He was he he remained convicted of that, but he had to get resentenced because they set one of the two charges aside. The the problem was. 
in the ledgers that we found, I mean, the, just the stuff that we found and could prove in one 12 month period, he, uh, Haji Bacho distributed over 123,000 kilograms of heroin. And just to kind of put that in perspective, that's 19.7% of the world's heroin that was distributed that year, right? So almost 20% was this guy's heroin that I could prove. And I know I don't, didn't have all the records. So he was by far the most prolific heroin trafficker in history, probably the biggest drug trafficker period in history. And when he was resentenced, he was, he was given, uh, I think, a 10-year sentence or whatever it was for that drug charge, even though nobody had ever been charged with more drugs. That, that, we introduced that evidence at trial, not just the, the couple kilos. Or we ended up buying four kilos of two different, uh, two different deals with him, and, and one, of, one of those charges was dropped, and the other one he was convicted on. But we showed what he did during that period of time. And I mean, during that period of time, there were thousands of deaths and hundreds of American soldiers were killed. And he was directly supporting the Taliban. And he was he was working with with poppy farmers to, to grow poppies and encouraging them to to deal in the heroin trade as a form of jihad. You know, so I mean, it was it was more than just here's a drug guy. Right. Like I told you my feelings on drugs in general, anyhow. But this was somebody who was directly supporting the Taliban. And we have we had we had a witness who was who was present when he was giving money to the Taliban and providing arms to the Taliban, you know. And so it was it when when he was not sentenced properly for the drugs, it was obviously quite upsetting um, when he went back. I'm sure he went back as a hero, you know. The, uh, so what what led to his release? How did that happen? So I have to be careful because it deals with classified information. Oh, okay. So I don't want to get you in trouble. No, no. So yeah, I don't want to get in trouble either. So let me just put it like this. Another agency had some derogatory information about one of the witnesses. And under U.S. law, anybody in the government who has anything that could be used to like impugn character, for example, has to be turned over to the defense. But we didn't know about this information until later through further investigation of something else. And then we turned it over to the defense and we found it later. So we could have retried Hachibacho on those charges. But, you know, witnesses were dead. People were hard to bring over. The trial itself cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And just the feasibility of retrying him was was, was so slight. So it's just the tech, some technical issues that have nothing to do with big philosophical deontological issues cause the guy to walk away as often happens, right? You didn't read the Miranda rights exactly verbatim. Therefore you can't admit the evidence or whatever, like stuff like that. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, you know, the, the, the material, which I won't talk about had nothing to do with this case, you know? So, and, and, and it wouldn't have had anything, it wouldn't have affected a new trial at all either, you know, but it was just, it happens, but even, even with that charge being dismissed and listen, I'm a, I'm a big believer in individual rights and I'm a big believer in people being able to, you know, at, like a government should turn over everything. A government should be able, you know, so I, I kind of agree with all that. What I don't agree with was the fact that this guy who's responsible for 20% of the world's heroin that year got like a 10 year sentence. Like that's a wow. problem. <laughs> is he, is he, do you know at all if he's back to his old tricks or has he retired in some uh, little cave somewhere? I'm sure he's back to, I mean, I'm sure he's sitting in Kabul right now being feted as a hero. You know I mean? When, when you, when you, when you like in the military was guilty of this over and over and over again, they they would, they would detain terrorists and then, but they would have no plan for them. Right. So they would hold them for a period of time and then they'd release them. And it was so much worse than just never detaining them in the first place, because as soon as they were let out and sent back to their village, they, they, they come back as heroes. Look, they can't hold me. I'm a, you know, I'm the, the Teflon Don syndrome. And so you got, you know, like that. So that's one of the reasons, by the way, I was I was pushing judicial solutions in Afghanistan 
the the um, Khan Mohammed case was the first ever narco-terrorism case. And we were using uh, U.S. law to go after terrorists, right, who are who are, you know, in the drug trade as a way to support terrorism. And, you know, it's 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 it is a solution, one of many. But we have to do something there. had there I, 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 We were so frustrated by, you know, catching people this catch and release of terrorists. There, there's a perceptual problem in the West where people think, wow, if someone's doing this horrific act, there must be a logical reason for it. And that's not true. When, when, when someone's, you know, a, a radical ideologue, when, when, when someone has a, a religion pushing them to do something, they're not thinking rationally. And, and I don't know how many times people have to tell us what they want to do before we believe them. We're constantly <laughs> saying what well, they don't really mean that. And they do mean that, you know, so the, our approach to like, you know, to like radical Islamic terrorism, for example, because that's what I spent a lot of my career dealing with, it couldn't be more wrong. You know, I mean, like, look what just happened in Israel. You know, it, it look, the, the, the most horrific acts, acts since the Holocaust. And, you know, and the, the leadership of Hamas is telling you why they did it. And we're still looking, we're still making excuses for them. It's, it's, it's insane. So you may or may not know this, but I mean, I've talked about exactly this issue at, at length for several decades, uh, culminating in, in this book, in the, the yellow book, in the parasitic mind. I have a chapter, uh, chapter six, which I titled Ostrich Parasitic Syndrome, where I specifically focus on various manifestations of ostrich behavior, right? The, the the metaphor being that you bury your head in the sand and you go, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. And exactly to your point, I actually list, I say, okay, well, here's the number of terror acts that have been committed since 9-11 alone by one religion, where they specifically state that they are doing it for the religion. And, and now, by the way, that, that counter is up to about 44,000 plus since 9-11 alone in nearly 70 countries, right? So you couldn't make up data that would be as unassailable and as unequivocal as that. And yet I then list all of the Western intelligentsia offering the real causes for why these things happen. And some of those, quote, real causes, and, and for those of you who are going to be listening on podcast, real causes is in air quotes, uh, are really, they come out straight out of my satire, but regrettably, they're not satirical. So example, it's due to beard bullying, right? So who, <laughs> who, who amongst us didn't decide that if they were beard bullied, they would head off to ISIS and join Raqqa. I mean, go to Raqqa and join ISIS to throw gays off rooftops. It's also due, it may surprise you or not, Jeff, due to lack of art exposure. So, for example, you know, you're walking around some uh, young Muslim guy in Brussels and you're not being exposed to enough Chagall and Dali and Renoir. And that's when you decide, well, listen, not enough art in my life. Time to kill the kuffar, right? So, uh, Bill Nye explained to us that the Bataclan attack in Paris was actually very clearly caused by climate change. So when you have Westerners being willing to espouse such insanity, is there hope for us, Mr. Higgins? Is there hope? You know, I'm a very optimistic guy, but no, Gad, there isn't. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not in a good place with this right now. I mean, and the, the fact that we've lost our ability to reason, I mean, that is really the biggest problem. Like, it, it used to talk about it being satirical. Our, we're, we're, everything is satirical. Now, you, you can't make up like the Babylon Bee can't get far enough ahead of a story yeah. to make it satirical. 
the things people believe and the and the lack of truths. And I think it goes down to a it comes down to a like a basic tribalism, you know. And it's so anything the other side says, even if that was my opinion five minutes ago, has to be wrong because they said it. And yeah. I, we're definitely in the in the United States at least we're in that position right now. You know, it's 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 whatever whatever the Democrats say is wrong, whatever the Republicans say is wrong, right? And and there's there has to be this objective stances or or even the belief in objective reality right that we can measure things and that something could be wrong or or how about some nuance how about this one politician is doing some good things but he's also doing some horrible things how about that that's a legitimate position but it we, i don't i know so few people who can actually do that or so so few people who can actually break themselves from their entrenched positions as if changing your mind it, it so, somehow makes you a lesser person, you know? And, and so if we can't have this debate and now, of course, thank, by the way, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you're doing, because like these like long form interviews, the, 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 your, your, your really courageous uh, stand for free speech. I mean, this is, this is the whole ball game. I mean, really, this is the whole ball game when you're getting, you know, censored on people, you, me, a lot of people censored on social media, you know, um, just literally, you can't break into mainstream media with certain ideas. When the government itself, the CIA, the FBI in the United States are pressuring people to silence people with opposing viewpoints to an administration. I mean, that is pure totalitarianism, right? And unless we can get, unless we can have this like open forum of ideas, we'll never get to the truth. And when you when you when you're even when you start to self-censor and we're there now, right, you're afraid of cancel culture. That's that's the beginning of the end. So, you know, honestly, the only way out of this and I, I said there's no hope there is there's always hope. And right. And there's like everything's a spectrum and there, the pendulum swings back and forth. But what you're doing is the way we get out of this. You got to you got to stop. We all have to stop demonizing the opponent of an idea and actually focus on the idea. Right. And, and, and get away from all the logical flaws and discuss it and then try to try and then we can compromise then we can we can agree to disagree on things and uh, but until we get back to that and we were there like 30 years ago i, I don't know what I, well, I do know what happened but this whole politically correct cancel culture movement is is destroying right. everything you know sorry you, for the rant but no it, no 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 it means a lot to that's, me that's what the long form uh, <laughs> format is for uh you at the start of your uh response you you said about you know how people are unwilling to change their minds and so on and it reminded me of a recent exchange I had. I was appearing on a British psychiatrist show, and he asked me a question, which uh, you know, in in retrospect, uh, you you'd think that many other people would have asked me, but I think he might have been the first one to ever ask me that question. I thought it was a brilliant one, and it's going to speak to what you were just talking about. He said, "Of all your years as a psychologist, as a behavioral scientist, as a professor, what has been the finding about human behavior?" that you found most surprising and shocking. And so that kind of took me aback because, you know, uh, I've had a long career. There are many things I could talk about, but what's the singular most surprising? And then I paused and I said, the inability of people to have the intellectual honesty to change their opinions. Yes. Uh, you know, it's once you are, and now here I'm going to get slightly academic. In, in chapter seven, of the parasitic mind, the, the, the title of the chapter is How to Seek Truth. And I'm arguing that there is an objective way to seek truth. But I start off with kind of a pessimistic outlook on that. I quote a, a this very long quote from uh, a great book called The Enigma of Reason by uh, two French psychologists, where they argued that our 
faculty to reason did not did not evolve to seek objective truth, but rather it evolved to win arguments. And therefore, oftentimes, I can present you all of the evidence of the world. Here, Jeff, here is all of the historical, economic, political, philosophical, psychological evidence that suggests that socialism and communism is doomed to fail. Guess what? That evidence is not going to sway you because God forbid you would ever change your opinion in light of incoming information. So I think that's probably the thing that epistemologically makes me the most pessimistic because sometimes I start questioning myself. I say, okay, I'm putting all this effort. I mean, I know I'm flipping some people, but those people are flippable. The really hardcore rigid ideologues. Is there any amount of evidence that I could ever offer them to change their mind? And regrettably, I think for some of those folks, it's a resounding no. You know, you, I've, I've heard even people that I, that I used to respect like intellectually Who've who've recent in recent years have talked about the uh, propagating lies because you know the the end goal the outcomes were too important to be left to chance you know and uh, by the way the, so yeah so someone who believes in like moral relativism you just you can you can't argue with that person there is no end to that and, oh, except for maybe over time they'll they'll realize how ridiculous what they're saying is but even that argument right that reason is there to to win an argument you know, evolution would say no, you know, because you can win every argument and still end up dead. You know, it's, 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 it's using reason to find reality is what helps us survive as a species, you know? And so one of them clearly leads to survival and the other does not. Right. Very interesting. Uh, okay. So I want to get, uh, I hope it's not an abrupt, uh, segue in a sense it isn't because I think your novels deal with some of the issues that we're talking about. So, okay, you come off from, you get out of this career as a law enforcement, you know, you're, you're hanging around in Kandahar or whatever, and you're with the special forces, <laughs> then you retire and you say, all right, act two of my career. I want to be a successful author. What was that transition? What was your process? And I ask you this because I often get people who write to me and say, Hey, Dr. Saad, what's the secret to being a good author? So do you have any recipes, one, two, threes that you could share with us? Well, the secret to being a good author is write, right? Don't talk about that you have a book, actually sit down and write the book. And, you know, they say it takes about a million words to achieve some mastery in it, sort of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. And there's some truth to that. So write. Also, you have to learn the craft and the business. That means, you know, following podcasts, going to seminars, joining, you know, going to conferences, joining writing groups, getting critique partners, like actually learning it. And it does take a while. If you're if you're doing that, if you're constantly trying to better yourself and learn, everything you write will be better than the, the predecessor, right? And so I'll go back, I'll, I'll finish a book and I'll go back to the beginning to start editing and I'll cringe at what I just wrote. So I'm actually a better writer at the end of that book than I was at the beginning. I, right. I don't know if you've experienced this as well. But, but it's interesting because probably not as much as what you're saying. I think because the process of writing nonfiction is inherently different from the process of writing fiction. And so that was actually, I mean, in a sense, you've you've teed me up perfectly for my next question, which is, I think you've done a bit of nonfiction writing, but mainly fiction. How does your process change depending on those two genres? Well, you're right. It's completely different. So the first thing I wrote upon retiring was the story of the first narco-terrorism case. So it was it was my story. It's nonfiction. I, I, I tried to sell it at the time. I, I, I got an agent with it. We, we had a lot of interest, but I didn't sell it. 
So it's one of those things that sort of sat on a shelf and I will go back now. This is 2017. So I'll go back and rewrite and then try it again. Um, but I, I also pivoted right after I, I got out because, you know, when you're in the government and you have a security clearance and everything, you're you're very limited in what you can say and what you can do. So I, I that, that was 2017. That was right during the time with all the defund the police, right, in the, in the beginning of the demonizing police. So I wrote a bunch of essays and articles actually showing facts, you know, about about what the numbers looked like in, in defending police. I mean, if, there, if there's a bad cop, if there's a racist cop, if there's a bad shooting everybody should be should be you know pointing it out and, and and it happens of course it happens right but it's it's not statistically significant and the numbers like every year you know there's there's something like there's like 10 million arrests about 700,000 US police officers sworn officers about 10 million arrests and out of them every year there's there's a there's actually more unarmed white people are killed than black people right but 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 the percentage the the the, the um the, the percentage is, is, is skewed because there's the, you know, blacks are like 13 and a half percent of the population or whatever. But when you, so I started actually going into like government uh, documents and showing what the numbers were, you know, because it, it really matters. Like if there's a, an epidemic of racist police shootings, we need to stop it. And it turns out not only is there not, it's, 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 it's almost non-existent. Like about every year, there's one to two dozen unarmed black men who are shot in the United States. And I would go through and I, and I was a, a tactical instructor for DEA. You know, I've been in a lot of violence encounters many many violent encounters and i would i would go through them and i would analyze each one you know and each year there's a couple of them that are bad for sure every year there's a couple just outlandish like shootings or things and in the in the cops go to jail but most of them even if they're unarmed people think unarmed and they think well that's a bad shooting but it's not true a lot of them came at the end of high-speed chases a lot of them came when the when the the suspect was wrestling for the police officer's gun or the the bad guy had just been shooting at the police officers and, and, and you know so when you when you look at them all there's only a couple um and and, and then so would you look at these numbers you say okay you know blacks are you know it's it's like it's like a, a third or whatever the number is i've written about the exact numbers of all the unarmed shootings but then you but then you look at like like the black community's involvement in crime right like 54% of homicides 54% of robberies etc cetera, etc cetera. once you account for that and you know as as a as a scientist yourself you know you look you look at confounding variables right and once you account for the their love their participation in criminality the the disparity goes away completely in fact it actually reverses in a lot of a lot of cases and there's been a, a bunch of studies about this you know from Roland Fryer who are you I was just going to say I, I was going to ask you if you're familiar with Roland Fryer's work yes yeah, and there's a there's a dozen of these done by different universities, and they all show the same thing. And then there's all these other like societal and and, and sociological variables, like father the percentage of fatherless homes, poverty. You know, like like almost all crime is done by young men, right? And the black population is significantly younger than the white population. So just that one fact alone would mean there'd be a higher level of criminality. It's nothing to do with race, obviously, right? It has to do with age and young men and testosterone. And so when you when you look at all that, it goes away completely. So I just I just got I, you know I, I did I did a lot of media about it you know over a couple of times, but it's not going away. And every election cycle, it comes back, and we'll probably get more of it you know this year leading into the U.S. elections. But it's but in a sense, what you just said, well, not in a sense, in, a, in an exact sense, it speaks to my earlier point about most people are unwilling to be swayed by facts, right? So when you said that the same faulty narrative keeps coming up, it suggests that you are impervious to this little pesky thing called data and analysis, right? Because I can't get rid of the narrative, right? So I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a great example of, of that. So I, I still receive, you know, pretty much almost every day, some 
thing from the university about how to be a better ally to women, as if women in North American universities are indistinguishable from little girls trying to go to school in Waziristan. That's the narrative, right? And so I had once shared the data from the U.S. government. Okay, you ready for this, Jeff? Four levels of educational attainment, associate's degree, so half a bachelor's, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctoral degree. So four levels of educational attainment broken up by five racial categories, you know, Hispanic, uh, indigenous, whatever, white, so on. So they are, So basically the matrix is four by five, four levels of attainment by five races. And in every single one of those cells, you can calculate the ratio of male to female in that cell. So I can go black, associate's degree, is it more men or women? Indigenous, doctoral degree, is it more men and women? So out of 20 cells, Jeff, guess how many cells women outnumber men? 20. Yes, sir. We have a winner, Jeopardy <laughs> champion. So the narrative is women need constant allyship because we live in Waziristan. The data could not have been doctored to be the exact opposite of the narrative, but no amount of data that I show you alters the fact that I receive emails saying we need to be, by the way, my dean is a woman, my departmental chair is a woman, my associate dean of research is a woman, but I need to find ways if I apply for a grant to argue how I'm going to be a better ally for women in universities. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 because it's narrative, right, and not not conclusion based on analysis of facts. And you know, my master's is in is in criminal justice, and I have a statistical research focus, and it's just basic like one hundred and one research and statistics. And it, and when you, it, and you have to look at that, but but the narrative survives because the narrative is the point. And so you know, it's not I'm not you're not the average person who's like listening to a podcast or hears something and then then repeats it right because that's what they heard on the news. But the people who are actually like propagating these lies have a have a political agenda, and yeah. they're they're not shy about talking about it. You know, like it's it's interesting that everything from like a disparity in like in like uh, gender with wages to climate change has the same solution end to capitalism. Yes. You know, like <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting because so I'm I'm I've often thought about so, but why is it that this reality exists? So I think it's a it's a couple of factors. Number one, most people regrettably are cognitive misers, which is a fancy way of saying they're intellectually lazy. If Barack Obama, peace be upon him, or uh, George Bush say that Islam is peace, then it's a lot easier for me to say, oh, well, my president said Islam is peace, therefore Islam is peace. The actually going through the hard work of putting together the evidence to either support the fact that Islam or peace is peaceful or not is too effortful. So I want to use some kind of simplifying heuristic to make sense of the world. So number one, people are cognitive misers. Number two, we are a storytelling animal. We love stories, right? That's why literature, that's why that's why fiction works, right? Because because our big brain is 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 fed by powerful literary narratives. So, if you concoct a story for me, that's going to be a lot better than if Jeff Higgins comes with all of his statistical analyses. I don't give a shit about reality and truth. Tell me a story that sticks. And that's the problem. What do you think? 
No, I, I completely agree. And it, and it's, it's, it is, it is so much easier and it's, it's also, there's social pressure, right? So if, if you have like basically a communist cadre and that's what it is, right? Uh, intellectual communist cadre who are pushing, who are pushing uh, pure socialism across the West, who hate everything about like uh, America and other Western powers who, who, who want to replace this and they're, they're, they're using race they're, 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 they're using dissension. I mean, these are Marxist 101 tools that they're using to try to tear down institutions so that they can replace it with something else. And don't trust me, ask them because they, they say it all openly all the time, you know, right. so you just have to believe them. But so that they create, they craft these narratives and they, and they spark something in us, right? If I, the idea of like a police officer, somebody that we have to trust to protect us is committing like a racist crime what's more horrific than that? Like, I mean, that, that makes me ill. Right. And I was spent 25 years in law. It makes us all like sickened by that. So I think there's this natural inclination to want to stand up or stand up for the underdog or, but the problem is it's not happening or when it happens, it, you actually take away from when it actually happens. Right. Cause there are racist incidents, there are bad yeah. cops and we all need to go after them. But when you, when every time there's a shooting, you call the cop a racist, even when there's not a single piece of evidence or any inclination to believe that that, that racism had something to do with it. What you, what you do is you make people question all of it, yeah. you know, and, and what, and I've been writing about this for, for years and years and years. And what you're seeing now is what happened like Miami in the eighties. They, they tried to like diversify. So they lowered standards and they, they made, they made the racial makeup of their police department, the goal, which by the way is fine because you know there's different cultures and it's great if you can have cops from all these different cultures and they can they can help with sensitivities and they can they can help with communication and all this but when you drop like a, a meritocracy in place of that you you cause huge problems and what what i predicted like it's got to be like like six seven years ago now is you're having people who don't want to get into law enforcement right like why would you in the united states want to be a cop right now like why would you you might want to protect your community you might want to do good but there's a good chance you would do your job exactly as trained and get indicted for doing it. So who would want to do that? Plus, you're getting demonized in the press and call all these horrible things. So we are seeing it. It's already happening. And it doesn't happen overnight. Right. The, the cops that are there now yeah. are retiring in mass and, and, and fewer good candidates are coming in. So what you're going to end up with is a, a lowering of the quality of candidates. And when that happens, the people who are going to suffer are the people who are in impoverished neighborhoods with higher crime rates. Exactly. So the very people we say we're protecting by demonizing the cops who weren't doing anything wrong. And by the way, sometimes they were right there. They're definitely departments that, that were doing a lot of bad things and we should focus on them. But I'm just talking in general, you know, and now you're actually hurting the very people you claimed you were going to help if that was your goal. But if your goal was to tear down the police and the institutions so that you could replace it with a utopian vision of the world that you have, then you don't care. And, that, and that's what's happening at the top. Indeed, as, as you were talking about sort of corrupt uh, uh, officers, I thought of the movie, I'm sure you've seen it by uh, uh, Al Pacino, Serpico. Do you remember that movie from way back oh, in yeah. the 70s? Yeah, yeah. so that was, uh, that was one of my early exposures as a young kid to, to Al Pacino. And then he became... Uh, one of my favorite actors. Okay, let's talk about, with the time that we have left, your book that's coming out on February 29th. Actually, the day that your book comes out is the day that I will be speaking about all of these parasitic ideas at Arizona State University. The reason why I know that is because it's a leap year, February 29th. Tell us about your latest book, The Forever Game, if I remember correctly, right? Right, so The Forever Game deals with artificial intelligence. I actually, I had a friend of mine who's the CEO of an AI company years ago and he told me that another CEO of another AI company was going to friends and family 
and offering to download their consciousness like as like a beta program and i'm like wait what was that you know <laughs> it's you know we're, we're really at this inflection point with ai and we're seeing yeah. it all over the place and so it's a, it's kind of a timely book but all my books kind of ha have a theme you know and and this one it's, it's really the, the nature of artificial intelligence and what it says about humanity and what it what it means to be human so i have a special agent adam Locke. Who, who quits DEA because his, his girlfriend is terminally ill so he can take care of her and he joins his brother's AI company. Then his brother dies under suspicious circumstances and, and Adam learns that this life-saving technology can be deadly. You know, so the, the, whole, the whole thing deals with like, what are the types of AI that people are experimenting with now? And what does that mean? I mean, it's, listen, it's fantastic stuff, right? When you can have like nanobots that go into your bloodstream yeah. and find cancer and cure things, it's amazing. But like what it means, like actually when you're downloading. OK, so this is real. So this is real. A couple of years ago, this is like five years ago now. I saw a uh, I read an article about a lab that was doing like some kind of high density MRI, some type of MRI. And they were they were watching the synaptic connections when somebody was having a memory. They were able to recreate that in the next room in a blind study in a blind. Wow. Lab fascinating right yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so so what does that mean you know what does that mean when you can download your thoughts and your memories and and as ai gets to that you know fourth or fifth generation right that 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 next level of ai where it's sentient or that it, that it's that it, it surpasses human ability what does that look like for us so I, anyhow that's what the book's about i mean it's i say all that it's it's a thriller so my books are they're fast-paced they're thrillers they're fun you know but having these underlying themes i think is, is always interesting uh, as you were mentioning that study, I think, and I'm wondering if it's the same study that I'm thinking of. There's a study, if I'm not mistaken, by a group of UCLA, or at least the lead author might have been at UCLA, a neuroscience group, where not, I don't think it was memories, but it was, let's say there are eight different types of thoughts that you could have. Uh, I'd, I'd like to touch my computer or whatever. Since each of those have a different neuronal activation pattern, they were able to then guess what the thought was based on the neuronal signature at, at higher level than chance. So it's exactly, it's a very similar idea to what you're talking about. So it's, it's unbelievable. Now, if one of your movies, uh, not one of your movies, one of your books were turned into a movie and one of the characters was an incredibly good looking wise guy. Can I immediately assume that I would be the guy who'd be playing that role? I mean, who else could possibly play it? Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> That's why you were the big DEA agent. You understand reality. Uh, <laughs> hey, Jeff, any other project? I, mean, I know you've got a, a looming one coming up on February 29th, so I don't want to look beyond that, but are there other projects, whether they be authoring or other things that you're working on that you'd like to take this opportunity to promote? It's oh, yeah. Well, thanks for, the, thanks for that question. The, sure. uh, I have another book called The Havana Syndrome. That's the working title. Oh, is that the, the 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 wave stuff, the, the yes. mysterious? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah it's, it's U.S. diplomats all over the world and then and other nationalities, right? Canadians as well, who've, 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 who've uh, succumbed to something, right? That's called the Havana syndrome. And a couple of years ago, I read the CIA put out a report and said that these are anomalous health incidents, right? And so they're they're blaming a, a psychogenic effects, and wow. yet that can't possibly be true, <laughs> you know. And I actually I have actually interviewed people who who were who were part of this or who who were who suffered from this had brain injury from it. But just to give you one example, there was a there was a uh, a national security uh, uh, officer, a national security um, advisor 
in I think it was across the across the river in DC. Um, and and she was stricken by the Savannah syndrome, right? Like with all, you know, the loss of balance and the the, the sound in the ears and all that. There's like a whole host of symptoms and people are like, oh, psychogenic causes. But her dog had a seizure at the same time, you know? So unless you feel like her dog is 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 watching television and open to suggestion. Or he's just mimicking her right. behavior. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Yes. That's actually a much better explanation than what I read in the CIA report. Right. So, you know, so anyhow, that's, that's what that book's about. It's an international thriller and it goes to places like Estonia and, and Ukraine and places that I, I, I did operations in and the Dominican Republic. And, and so it's, it's, it, I think that's a lot of fun. That's coming out with Severn River Publishing in 2025. And then I have another one a uh, called Shaking, which is like a pure mystery it takes place in a little town of Harvard, Massachusetts, where I grew up. And that's coming out in the summer of 2025 with uh, Running Wild Press. Very cool. So are most of your books in one way or another related to, you know, your history in that, you know, most people write about what they know about. And so is that what's happening in your case or or do you do you try to traverse landscapes that are otherwise completely unfamiliar to you? Well, doing what you're suggesting would make a lot more sense for branding, but I, they're all thrillers, right? Okay. So they're all mystery thrillers. But my first book, uh, Furious, is psychological suspense. And it's a woman who's lost a child and her husband takes her across the Indian Ocean to get her away from everything. And, well, bad things happen because it's a thriller. Uh, you know, the second one, Unseen, is about it's about uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and, 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 and an actual real life terror conspiracy. A, a topic that your wife, I believe, knows a bit about. A bit. She's probably the world's leading expert on that. <laughs> By the way, her book, The Secret Apparatus, is required reading. If, you, if you're interested yes. in, in terrorism, you have to read that book. It's, she's, it's the only book like it. And she's, she's the only one who had that information. She's, she's studied this stuff for decades and decades. And, you know, DHS is reading it now. And it's, 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 she's all over the world. She's, she's, getting, she's in academic libraries all over the place. But read that book. I, I really recommend it. That's fantastic. Well, you, you rarely do you have a marriage where both partners are the epitome of honey badgers. You are both certified as honey badgers. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jeff. Uh, stay in touch. And as I said, offline, if we, if I ever make it, I'm sure I'll make it to the Washington area. I look forward to meeting you both in person. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. I, I keep up the good work. Thank you, sir.